Good morning, and welcome to the Truth and Love radio broadcast. This program has been a part of the Mid-South for the last 70 years, faithfully overseen by the Getwold Church of Christ. Truth and Love will carry on lifting up the banner of New Testament Christianity today to the Mid-South area under the oversight of the Olive Branch Church of Christ. Please join us now as Mike Hickson opens the Bible and shares the truth in love. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, the Apostle Paul asked the question, What does the Scripture say? Our goal in answering questions that relate to matters of religion ought to be to ask that simple yet profound question. What does the Scripture say? After all, the Bible's what's going to judge us one day. We're not going to be judged by what we think in our heart or how we feel. The majority or the consensus of the world, that's not going to be the standard by which man will be judged, nor will, be ju- nor will we be judged by denominational doctrines and manuals of faith, catechisms, etc. No, we're going to be judged according to truth. You remember the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, the question was raised, what is truth? The Lord answered that question in John 17, verse 17. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. In Revelation chapter 20, beginning in about verse 12, John said in the long ago, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Question, what books were opened, according to John, on that great and final day? The answer, the truth of God, or the scriptures. Jesus said in John 12, verse 48, During his earthly ministry, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. When it comes to matters of faith and practice, we ought to always ask the question, What does the scripture say? In Acts chapter 17, the Bible tells us, Luke tells us, that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind or heart, and they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Bear in mind that the apostle Paul was an inspired man. He was an inspired apostle, and yet they still checked out what he said in light of God's word. That being the case, is it not true today that we ought to put to to the test what we hear and practice in light of God's divine standard? Again, the gold standard by which everything must pass is Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, Paul said, Prove all things, test all things, hold fast that which is good. That would imply that some things are not good. 
What then is the standard by which everything is to be proved or tested? The only reasonable conclusion is God's Word. That being said, let's just ask the question today. What does the Scripture say? And I want you to consider very carefully some of the things that we're going to be talking about. Because there are many, many things in the religious world that are often advocated in practice that when put to the test, as Paul said, quite frankly, do not meet the litmus test of truth. Remember, though, in matters of opinion, we must always exercise liberty. But in matters of faith and practice, there must be unity. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. What we want to make sure that we do is provide book, chapter, and verse for what we believe and practice. That being said, let me just call to your attention some things that are often said in the world today that ought to be analyzed under the microscope of divine truth. How many times have you heard people say in days gone by, just join the church of your choice? Or some would say, Jesus, yes, the church, no. Others would say, you know, the church is really not that important of an entity. Well, let me just ask you to consider some things very carefully. Did you know that the church exists according to God's eternal plan? There are some today that have the idea that the church was an afterthought on God's part. Not at all. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9-11, through 11, the Apostle Paul says that the church exists according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church and Christ are imperative in God's redemptive plan. As a matter of fact, the church was not a part of God's redemptive plan. The church, like Christ, is God's redemptive plan. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden, and God immediately began unveiling that promised seed, the coming of the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 12, the promise was made to Abraham that through his seed line, all nations, all families of the earth would be blessed. The primary fulfillment of that promise realized in Christ, according to Galatians chapter 3. Jesus Christ, according to John in the Revelation, was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, chapter 13, verse 8. Did you know that God in his infinite wisdom had a plan in mind to save fallen man. What was that plan? Well, it was a plan of redemption. It involved Christ and the church, or kingdom of God. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah saw the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. He pointed out that the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. In other words, the originating point of the church, this exalted mountain, would be the city of Jerusalem. Furthermore, he noted, the church would be comprised of all nations, not just Jews, but it would consist of both Jews and Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul said that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. Now, having said all of that, you remember in Matthew chapter 3, 
Matthew records for us the beginning of the preaching of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Christ, the one who pointed people in the direction of the coming of the Messiah, preparing their hearts to be receptive to God's chosen Son, that is, the one that would redeem humanity. John said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the Lord began his earthly ministry, as recorded by Matthew in chapter 4, he heralded the very same message. And then in Matthew chapter 16, you remember Jesus was in northern Palestine, Caesarea Philippi to be exact. On that occasion, he asked the disciples, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist. Some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus then asked this very important question, But whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter spoke up and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then replied by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now listen to him. And I also say to you that you're Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now let me just pause there for a moment or two. Based upon the bedrock statement made by Peter, that Jesus was and is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of the living God, Jesus then affirmed that he would build his church. Note if you would, Jesus didn't promise to build churches, plural, but rather he promised to build the church, singular. And then also take note of the fact that the church would belong to him. He said, I will build my church, possessive in nature. Now again, to go back and to just answer the question, is the church a non-important entity? Is it really not that big of a deal? Did you know that the church was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus? In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. All right? Paul there acknowledging the fact that the church is the blood-bought body of Jesus. So did he build it? Yes, he did. The church began on Pentecost Day. Acts chapter 2 often called the hub of the Bible. Everything up to Acts chapter 2 is pointing to the establishment of the church of the kingdom of God. Daniel, that great prophet in days gone by, served in the court of the Chaldeans. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, didn't understand the nature of the dream. Daniel was summoned to interpret it. And Daniel, in his interpretation, foresaw four world empires, beginning with Babylon, over which Nebuchadnezzar was king. And he said that that Babylonian kingdom would later give way to another kingdom, that being the Medes and the Persians, which would later fall to the Grecian Empire and then in turn would be, would be followed by the Roman Empire. In the context, Daniel said he saw a stone cut without hands that would fill all the earth. I think that when you look at that text, what Daniel is talking about is the church. 
It was that stone cut without hands. It was built by the divine Son of God. It would fill the, the whole earth, as Isaiah said, it would, be, it would consist of both Jews and Gentiles. And then in Daniel chapter 2 at verse 44, Daniel said, In the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The kingdom will not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom and the church often in the, New in the New Testament are used interchangeably. Again, looking at Matthew chapter 16, Jesus promised to build the church. In verse 19, Jesus promised Peter that, the, that he would be the recipient of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the church is an important institution. It was built by Jesus. It was bought by Jesus and it belongs to Jesus. It is his church. It ought to wear his name. And by the way, he is the one that regulates the church. Now, there are those in the world today that have the idea that the authority rests within the church. Well, you know, respectfully, churches can be wrong, but the Bible is always right. That's why, again, the Apostle Paul ask a very pertinent question, a profound question. What does the scripture say? The authority of the church, or rather the authority in matters of religion, is not the church, but rather it is the Bible. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. In Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured, in the presence of Peter, James, and John. You remember two Old Testament figures appeared on the scene, Moses, the lawgiver and leader of ancient Israel, and then Elijah, who stood for the great prophets of God in days gone by. A voice rang forth from heaven. God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. In matters of religion, the authority is the Bible. Jesus said that he is the one vested with all authority. All right, here's a question. If the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven and we're on earth, how then will he regulate the church? Well, the answer is very simple. The answer is he does so by his word. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, Paul speaks of Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. This new covenant was executed on Pentecost Day. Matter of fact, that old covenant, the law of Moses, was nailed to the cross. Paul said in Colossians 2 verse 14, it was taken out of the way. The church today is governed by the authoritative word of the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3 at verse 17, Paul said, Whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks unto God the Father through him. What does it mean to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it means to do it by his authority. And again, we ask the question, what is the authority that regulates the church? 
Well, the authority is that standard that we've been talking about. It's the Bible. And what we've tried to say is that the church exists according to God's eternal plan, that the church was built by Jesus, that it was bought by Jesus, it belongs to Jesus, and it is governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to ensure that your estate is distributed according to your wishes, what do you do? Well, we know that the easiest thing to do is to write a will. At our death, that will, be, that will will be probated and executed. By the same token, we have the last will and testament of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no need for any organization here on earth to govern the church. Why? Because the Lord does that from heaven. Now, I know that there are those in the religious world today that have the idea that the church is governed by a man who resides here on earth. He is the head of the church on the earth. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that there is one exclusive head over the church or the one body. That exclusive head is not the papacy, but rather it is the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said he is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Did you take note of the fact that Paul acknowledged Jesus as the head of the body? There are not two heads and one body. No, the Bible says there is only one head and there is only one body. Now, somebody might say, now, wait a minute. You're telling me that there is only one body or one church authorized by God to exist on earth today. Well, don't take my word for it. Listen to what the Bible says. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said, There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all, through all and over all. That's found in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. Now somebody might ask the question, well, what then is the one body? In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul writes, he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, listen to him, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, Paul how many bodies are there? There's only one body. Now, if the body and the church are one and the same, that means there's only one church. Furthermore, there's not just one church. There is only one head. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the head of the church, just as the husband is the head over the wife and subject to him. The church is directed by the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, said, But if I tarry long, that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul said that he was writing to Timothy. For what reason? That he might know how to behave or conduct himself in the house of God, the church of the living God, 
the pillar and ground of the truth. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, Paul said that the things that he wrote were the commandments of the Lord. So what Paul was saying to Timothy is, I'm writing these things so that you and those who are members of the body of Christ will know how to behave or conduct themselves in this divine institution. Now let me just ask this question. Do you have to be a member of the church to go to heaven? I mean, is it really that essential? Well, let's just go back and look at what the record says. You remember in Acts chapter 2, we have an account of the apostle Peter, as well as the other apostles, were preaching the gospel. And the Bible tells us that in Acts chapter 2 at verse 4, that they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, let me just pause there for a minute or two. Back in John chapter 14, Jesus promised the apostles, and this is exclusive to the apostles. He promised them that upon his departure, that the comforter of the Holy Spirit would come. He would teach them all things and bring all things to their remembrance that he had taught them. In John chapter 16, Jesus said that it was to their advantage that he left them. He said, for if I do not leave you, the Holy Spirit won't come, but if I depart, I'll send him to you. Down in verse 13, Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. The apostles were God's ambassadors. They were his special servants sent for a very specific task. And so on Pentecost day, they received the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they had the ability to legislate the terms of entrance into the kingdom or church that Jesus had promised to build that had been purchased with his divine blood that began on that day in Jerusalem. In his preaching and teaching, Peter accentuated the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Furthermore, he acknowledged that Jesus had been coronated in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, where he wields all authority. What Peter, what Peter was saying in that great sermon some 2,000 years ago was that Jesus Christ was now sitting upon the spiritual throne of David. God had promised David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that a kingdom would be established and the seed line of that kingdom would run through his family. Well, Jesus Christ is now sitting upon that spiritual throne. That throne is in heaven. And again, he wields all authority from that position because he said all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. So he preached the gospel to them on that occasion. In verse 36, the Bible says that Peter said to those who were present on that occasion, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus, whom you've crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, pricked in their heart. You remember what Jesus had said regarding the Holy Spirit in John 16? That when he, when he would come, that he would convict the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. When the gospel was preached in the first century on Pentecost Day, 
many of those people who were present were cut to the heart. They were convicted of sin. And they cried out and asked this question, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now I want you to pay very special attention to what the, what the Apostle Peter said on that occasion. And note how distinctive what he said was on that occasion in light of what we often hear in the religious world today. And again, I want to just plant this seed. We've asked the question, what does the scripture say? All right, these people have been convicted of sin. They realize that they need an answer to their sinful dilemma. They ask, what shall we do? And here's what Peter said, repent. Repentance is a change of heart followed by a change of actions. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For what reason? For the remission of your sins. That is, so that your sins might be forgiven. A moment ago, I said that to do something in the name of means to do it by his authority. Did Peter have authority to legislate how people in the first century entered the kingdom of God? And the answer unequivocally is yes. So that being said, what gives someone the authority today to tell people that the only thing that you need to do to become a Christian is to accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and then say the sinner's prayer? With all due respect, that is not found in the scriptures. Now, if we ask the question, what does the scripture say? The scripture says, number one, to repent. Did they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, they did. They put him to death. They were instructed to repent and be baptized. Why? For the remission of their sins. Now, go back again and look at Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus promised to build the church, in verse 19, he told Peter and the other apostles were the recipients of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys signify authority. And the Bible says that Peter and the apostles received the keys of the kingdom of heaven. On Pentecost Day, they took those keys and unlocked the doors into the kingdom of God or church of Christ. How then did those people become members of the body of Christ? They obeyed the gospel. They repented of their sins. They'd already believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They repented of their sins and they were baptized into Christ. In verse 41, the Bible tells us some 3,000 people yielded obedience to the gospel on that day. Now look at verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, who then were in the church? Those who were saved. Well, who were the saved? Those who were in the church. Well, what did they do? They repented of sin. They were baptized into Christ. And God added them to the church. All right, here's the question. Can you be saved outside the church of Christ? Now, I'm not talking about the church of Christ in a denominational sense. The church of Christ is pre-denominational. As a matter of fact, in the first century, if you had asked somebody who had been baptized on that occasion, what church do you belong to? They would have responded by saying, what, what do you mean? What church? There's just one church. Well, what church? Well, the church that Jesus died and purchased with his blood. So, those who responded to heaven's invitation were added to the church. Do you have to be a member of the, of the church to go to heaven? We'll look at Ephesians 5, verse 23. The Bible says... And he, that is Christ, 
is the Savior of the body. What's the body? He's the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. Do you have to be a member of the church to go to heaven? Well, yes. Salvation is located in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. The only way one can get into Christ is by being baptized into Christ. When you're baptized into Christ, you enjoy, as Jesus said, salvation, Mark 16, 16. You are the recipient of the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. The Bible says your sins are washed away, Acts 22, verse 16, and you are added to the church, Acts 2, verse 47. What does the scripture say? Exactly what I just said a minute ago. That's book, chapter, and verse. I want to encourage you. Test all things. Prove all things. You make sure that what you're following in matters of religion can be found in the scriptures. God bless you. Thank you for listening today. We would love to have you visit with us at the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandridge Road, Olive Branch, Mississippi, 38654. We meet for Sunday Bible study at 9 a.m. Worship is at 10 a.m. Sunday afternoon study is at 1 p.m. Tuesday morning class, Bible class is at 10 a.m. Wednesday evening Bible class at 7 p.m. Please visit our website, www.olivebranchchurchofchrist.org.